Chaos looms, and darkness swiftly approaches. It's time to build your fires and defend the perimeter. Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode three of The Perimeter. I'm joined today with Will Spencer, who runs an account called The Renaissance of Men. And I first met Will last year in Orlando, Florida, when I was speaking at the 21 convention. Uh, it, funny story, we actually just kind of ran into each other at three o'clock in the morning when I was leaving the gym. And he was sitting there drinking with Jack Donovan, and we ended up having a conversation for about four hours until my speech. Yeah. But, uh, Will, it's great to see you again. Thanks for coming on the show, brother. Good to see you, Jeff. Thanks for having me on. <clears throat> yeah, man. Um, so... You, you've got a lot going on. I mean, you're, you write, you, you're a photographer, uh, you're a filmmaker. Well, I can dig that, man. Uh, right now, I'm just throwing out the uh, live link to the show on Twitter for everybody to start chiming in. Uh, so it's Top Secret Project. Mm -hmm. I, of course, know what it is, but we'll leave that for everyone else to find out as they go along. Yep. So the Renaissance of men. Now, when I think of the Renaissance, I think of you know, like the Renaissance artists, the ones who were subverting uh, culture, as it were. Yeah. You know, they were going against the grain of what was expected of them with these small subliminal messages that they were tying into their paintings and their literature and their sculptures. What about the modern culture are you trying to bring about a Renaissance of? Well, I see, I see what's happening in this world of men's personal development as not a, 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 a thing that's just happening right now. Like, I think a lot of us know about the manosphere. Maybe some people know about red pill, uh, but we all found our way into this world. And I don't know that everyone knows how long this wave of men's personal development has been going on. It actually started in the 1980s and potentially even in the 1970s. So this phase that we're all living in, whether you want to call it the manosphere or the red pill or, or, or a healthy patriarchy or the solar ascension or whatever you call it, is actually the end product of 40 years of work by men and women around the world. And so I came into this world through an organization called the Mankind Project. In 2013, I went on their new warrior training adventure, and that was my introduction to men's personal development. And so I spent the next, I guess you'd say, eight years now exploring all these different authors, bloggers, content creators, public speakers, etc., who were all discussing various aspects of masculinity and discovered they'd been doing it for a really long time. And I said, oh, that's really interesting. And so once I started to put the pieces together in my mind of the various stages that this process has gone through, it became really clear that something very special is happening and we're not just entering a space, we're going through a process as men, a process of, I think, a process of rebirth of what it means to be a man. And so that's why I called it the renaissance of men. It's not a revolution. It's not something that's going around in cycles up and down. It's a linear process from point A to point B and we will end up in a better place than where we began. And so that's a renaissance or that's a rebirth. And so that's where I came up with the name. I'm not sure if that was your question, but... I mean, it, it answers the question. You know, you mentioned, you know, it's not a revolution. And yeah. I think that is the word that gets thrown around a lot in yeah. modern vernacular, especially in the self-improvement circle, 
the political sphere that has kind of crept its way into the men's movement, uh, as well as, you know, the movement of those flag-waving patriots who acted like a bunch of jabronis on January the 6th and stormed the Capitol only to throw piss and shit everywhere. Mm. So, you know, accomplishing nothing but pissing a lot of people off. Right. Uh, the thing about revolutions is they only matter if you like who ends up in charge. Right. 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 And then for how long they end up in charge. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and reform reform doesn't fit either because reform rarely ever lasts. Um, reform is one of those, it'll be adjusted for just a little while. And then people just kind of fall back into the old habits because it felt familiar and they're used to it. Mm -hmm. But when the Renaissance, I love that. I love that term because it is a, it's a rebirthing of something that has existed before. Yeah. We've been here before. We've been where you want us to go before. It's just a matter of bringing everyone to that side of the table mm -hmm. and saying, see the view from over here. We've been here. It looks nice, right? We don't have to stay over there. Yeah. I really like that. Uh, so, you mentioned you've traveled quite a bit and I've seen your Instagram. I've seen, you know, you're wearing a Kung Fu uniform, throwing blades. Uh, it, very awesome. Your travels over the world, checking out these different cultures and these different ways of men and these small tribes of men and the cultures and subcultures that they all uh, exist in. Mm -hmm. What would you say has been the most influential of those cultures on the way that you look at things now with what you're trying to do? Hmm. That's a, that's a great question. Actually. Um, I could tell you, I could tell you what had the first impact and then, and then I could probably answer it more deeply. So, uh, I lived in San Francisco for 20 years. Uh, I and apologize. Yeah. Right. So, um, while living in San Francisco, like many of the men there, I had absorbed all these deeply anti-male beliefs. I'm a man, I'm patriarchal, my, my gaze is oppressive, my sexual desire is oppressive and evil and wrong, and I'm, I'm wrong for being a man. And I should treat all women with deference and respect, like, oh, sorry, did I make eye contact with you? Am I intruding in your space? Like, with my, with my appreciation of your beauty, like, sorry, I'm oppressing you. Like, I had all these beliefs about myself, which is, you know, I grew up, my, 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 uh, my parents were boomers and I you know I grew up with uh, the feminized school system. And so this was programming that lived inside my head. So, uh, and in my heart and in some ways in my body as well. So then I went to South America. That was the first stop on my, uh, on my travels. And I went to uh, Medellin, Colombia, which is an incredible city. It's an incredible city. It breaks my heart to see the violence that ha that's happening in that country right now. But Medellin is the city of eternal spring. It's a, it's a, it's a cross-cultural city that blends lots of uh, global cultures together to create this beautiful spirit of life. And I went to Medellin and the, and the Colombian women are among some of the most beautiful in the world. Uh, and they argue with the Venezuelans over who has more beautiful women and they argue with the Spaniards and that's the whole thing. So um, I, I started going on dates while I was there and the women were like, come on, be a man. Why are you such a pussy? Like, what are you talking about? Like, am I, I'm sorry if I'm oppressing you. And they're like, what are you talking about? And that was my introduction that the whole rest of the world does not think about male, female sexual dynamics in the same way to the twisted West does that men and men in uh, 
South America are expected to be men. They're expected to be uh, what we might say assertive, um, some in some ways aggressive, uh, in some ways confident and grounded in their bodies and aware of their sexual desire and expressive of it and unashamed of it. And that's what brings it out in women. And there's this wonderful, if you ever watch a pair of salsa dancers and you watch, you know, dancing, partner dancing is in many ways simulated sex and you watch that and you see the way that the men, the man and the woman move together and they engage in this beautiful dance of what we might call courtship. And when I went down to South America and also I, I tangoed in, in Buenos Aires as well, which is where tango was invented. And it's the same, the man leads and the woman follows. And actually while I was there, um, I went to the La Catedral de Tango, which is like the, the it's like the most famous place for tango in, in the world. And um, that I did a tango lesson, and then they had all the all the people who usually show up and dance tango together um, were just dancing as they usually do. I wasn't good enough to do it, so I sat in the crowd and I watched. And I saw this beautiful thing. I saw this old man, absolutely in his 70s, dancing with a girl who was in her 20s. And to watch a man in his 70s tango dancing with a girl in their 20s and watch their body language, watch how comfortably she moved with him and how energetic she was and how he had to very gently slow her down, like, no, stay, stay in the moment. And to watch this Latin couple do something that in America would probably be scandalous, a 70-year-old man dancing with a 20-year-old woman, huh. but to, to see it as one of the most moving portrayals of masculinity and femininity I think I'd ever seen in my life. And to understand in South America that, and in many places around the world, the approach to masculinity and femininity is very different from the mistaken ideas that we have in America. And that was the beginning of my deprogramming. That was the beginning of me recognizing these ideas that were given to me by my culture about men and women are absolutely, if they're not wrong, then they're not the only game in town. And, uh, and so that was a really powerful experience for me, the first of many. Uh, I can see how that would be definitely looked at as something scandalous here in the West. Right. Um, it's beautiful. Yeah, yeah. You know, in, it's expressive art. But I do like the way that you uh, said that uh, it's basically sex on your feet. Mm -hmm. uh, the way that I've always heard it is that dancing is a horizontal act expressed vertically. Oh, uh, nice. I like that. I like that. Yeah. Um, so down in South America, and it's such a stark contrast for the way that we look at the culture between men and women here and the way that just the general dynamic of interactivity between, you know, each gender uh, is perceived as well as portrayed. Why do you think the West has gotten to the point it is now where the things that make us who we are and what we are have become such social taboos that even the mention of it will make some people just clutch at their pearls and kind of withdraw from the conversation completely? I think it's because people in the West, Europe and the United States especially, are fundamentally good people. They're fundamentally good people. Like here's, you have a lot of parents who are like, who really worry like, am I being a good parent? Am I being a good parent? I'm not a parent, but I've talked to many of them obviously. Am I being a good parent? It's like, oh, sorry, I'm banging my microphone. But what I realized is like, if, you, if you're worried about being a good parent, chances are you're probably a good parent. The, the parents who are not good parents are not, they don't care. They're just, they don't even pay attention. So people in the West are fundamentally good and decent people. They're kind, they're friendly, they're welcoming. That's the story for anyone who travels to the United States is if you have an accent and you come to America, people will treat you very kindly because we're fundamentally good people at our hearts. 
fundamentally good people are very susceptible to guilt and shame. They're very they're so concerned about being good people that they they are willing to hurt themselves in some ways if they if they believe they're not doing that. And so the social justice ideology that's polluting so much of our dialogue and our uh, and our, our politics and our world right now plays on people's innate guilt and shame and want to be good people. And because the media is so strong, it pushes these ideas, and we can get into the roots of these ideas, but we'll just keep them for what they are, that you should be guilty and you should be ashamed of what and who you are. And if you're guilty and ashamed of what and who you are, you will be a good person and you'll be a better person if you just do what we say. And that's where these come from. It comes from the good heart of so many people that desperately want to be seen as good people, but they don't realize that they're being manipulated. Uh, they don't realize that, that uh, authoritarianism is real and they don't want to take on the responsibility of freedom and independence and, and free thinking um, because they'd rather just be told what to believe. So it's a big complicated mix, but I believe it's because the people in America and also in Europe are fundamentally good and decent people that want to be seen as such and want to behave as such, um, but without religion guiding them, they're open to the state guiding them. Let's just put it that way. It sounds to me like it is rooted in the, I get, well, it's rooted in the Puritan roots of the way this country was founded. Awesome. And, and, you know, if you think about uh, that particular time uh, in our culture or our society, mm-hmm. guilt culture is essentially Christian culture. You should feel guilty about your nature. There is a pathway to absolve yourself of this guilt, and that is through repentance and confession and trying to live more God or Christ-like. Okay, yeah. That is the path of evolution that will lead you from guilt. Mm -hmm. But you won't repent from anything if you're not guilty of it. If you don't feel guilty about it. Yes. Yes. Or, or shame like guilt and shame cultures. There's two, di- there's two different kinds of cultures. There's guilt culture, which is America and the West and there's shame culture, which is like China and Eastern cultures are shame based more social in nature. Yeah, very much. So there's a huge contrast. And I cover this in the book that I just finished uh, mm. between guilt culture and shame culture. Shame culture is by all means a very fantastic way to run a society because if there's fear of ostracization rather than just fear of being made to feel guilty, you are more socially inclined to meet the status quo in the expectations of a certain society's, you know, standards of behavior, feeling guilty or being made to feel guilty pushes you to develop this resentment, right? Especially when we, especially when we have this idea of, uh, what makes you better than me? And, the, and you shouldn't be holier than thou. And then the whole conflation of um, the scripture of only God can judge. Right? I'm not even a Christian. And I know that I, I know that that scripture has been misinterpreted more times than almost any other outside of turn the other cheek. Right. Yeah. Oof, that one. Right. But with shame culture, it's ultimately the fear of getting one's ass beat rather than the fear of being made to think that you're a bad person. Getting ones. Yes. Okay. Got it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that, that's the way it comes across to me when I read, when I, when I read through things like uh, the genealogy of morals with Nietzsche, mm-hmm. um, 
you know, there's the master and the slave morality. The master morality is if it is good for me and it is good for my people, then it is inherently good. If it is bad for me and bad for my people, then it is inherently bad. Versus the slave morality, it takes upon a very, very utilitarian approach. If it's good for the majority, then it's good for everyone. Right, yeah. That's an ongoing debate, right? It's, it's a very much ongoing debate. Yeah. However, elements of both, because both of those extremes are completely ridiculous. There's some things that might be good for you, but it's going to be horrible for humanity. So it's still not good regardless of how you feel. Right. But with the slave morality mindedness, as Nietzsche put it, there is the sense of utilitarianism to a point of destruction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Equally good for everyone is not good. Because what, what when we do that, we take away from the merit of those that have earned a higher position or earned uh, more throughout their accomplishments or their works and things like that. And those things can be enforced with guilt culture being the one to, no, 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 you should feel bad about this person who's never worked a day in their life who uh, doesn't have as much money as you. So you should share your wealth with them and you should give them and donate all of your works away, suffer here and now so that you're rewarded later. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, you could do that with shame as well. You can do that as shame as well. But with shame, it's a much more direct approach, I think. Mm-hmm. I think it's, no, you do this, you're, you're out, you're done whatever. We're not going to sit here and keep beating you over the head, making you feel guilty. You're just done and out, which I think that's a much more effective way. Cause I mean, people get mad at the way China runs things, but they've got a lock on their people. Yeah. I've been to China. They sure do. <laughs> they do. Now, and I'm not endorsing the communists over there because I just think they're terrible people altogether. Yeah. But it's pretty, it's pretty rough over there, but outside of the communist nature of it all, if you want to be a part of a society, having to comply with that society's rules and standards and assimilate to it should be standard and universal and should be enforced rather be enforced actively rather than passively, mm-hmm. because passive enforcement is what led us to where we are today, where we have 360, 370 million people here in the U.S. Not a single one of them will share the same morals or values as the other. But we're all still, for some reason, expected to remain united under one banner. Sure. You know, for me, what this what comes down this comes down to, um, I can only be a Western man because that's what I am. I've been to China, I've been to Japan, I've been to Korea, been to Mongolia, uh, and and so I've experienced these cultures, and I'm I'm able, I recognize that these cultures work very very differently from the ones that I'm from. It's almost like visiting it's almost like visiting another planet in some ways. Um, but for me as, as a Western man, as someone with a, with a Western lineage, what this comes down to is the notion of conscience. And conscience is this thing that lives inside our, we'll say, mind and hearts that has its own voice independent of our wishes. Where the conscience comes from, how it operates, I've got no idea. But we all have it. We all have this little voice inside ourselves that says what we're doing is right or what we're doing is wrong or what we're doing is some sort of, some sort of mix of that. Right. And so we can't get we can't cut out our conscience. I mean, I suppose uh, psychopaths don't have one, but that's a that's a whole other conversation. But you and me as normal, normal people, presumably uh, with consciences, we have to wrestle with our conscience. And the thing with guilt and, and, and shame is that either one can be used to manipulate the individual in relation to his conscience. 
And so what we have in America right now, uh, and I would imagine probably for the past couple generations, several generations, is a, um, a denigration of the notion of conscience. Uh, the idea that this little voice, don't listen to that little voice inside your head, because there is a spiritual component to that voice, right? This, you know, it, it does in some ways come from God or the gods. Like, I don't want to get in a theological argument of where it comes from, but nonetheless, we have it. And so, so authoritarianism is used for using both tactics of guilt and shaming is what we're having, you're seeing today. So the whole Karen phenomenon, the whole mask phenomenon, that's, uh, that's, that's shame. That's shame culture. You don't wear a mask. Oh, we're all wearing a mask. Why aren't you wearing a mask? That's social shaming, right? That's to manipulate you to violate your conscience if you have one. Most people's consciences are very weak anyway, especially men today, which is a whole thing we can get into. The guilt culture comes with the individual not being able to identify what the right course of action is in contrast to what their perceived outside reality is versus their own internal compass. So my internal compass says I should do X, whatever that is, the ex, you know, the, some external guidelines say I should be doing Y, I'm not doing Y, so I feel guilty. So that's, that's a, it's a very personal thing. And as individuals, as men that are seeking to integrate, we have to integrate both our presence as, indivi as individual beings and as members of a collective. So guilt and shame are sort of our things to kind of navigate through life. And I don't know that any either is, is preferable. I, I think both, um, I think both have their own dangers. And I would rather be in a place as an individual where I have to navigate the tenuous balance between myself and my own needs and my people and my tribe and some sort of larger network that I'm connected to. But I, I know that you're a fan of Jack Donovan's work, as am I, and I read his book, Becoming a Barbarian. And I think that book was, he wrote it, what, in 2014, something like that. That book was incredibly prescient in many ways around um, helping men say, not my people, not my problem. And now that is absolutely up. I read that book. I'm like, why did not, I not read this sooner? Because living in San Francisco, which I was at the time, I'd never even heard any, I didn't even know what a Jack Donovan was back then. Um, you know, I, I, I had identified myself as the universal man, like, oh, I need to sacrifice all of my own boundaries to help everyone and everything. And, um, you know, as soon as I read his book, I recognized, no, I can actually self-identify with my own tribe. And inside my tribe, we select our values. And that helps me navigate both guilt and shame and potentially honor as well. And so I think this is the unique charge of men today is uh, we talked about the Renaissance earlier. I, I don't necessarily see what we're going through as a going back. I see it as going forward, taking the best of the past and the best of the present and forging a new synthesis, which we're still working out in real time. So, you know, if, if let's just say for thousands of years, we lived in a collectivist way, which is very shame driven and we've transitioned to a more individualistic way of being following the Renaissance itself, which was very guilt-driven, very individualistic. What we're doing as men now, I believe, is forging a new way forward of individualism and I guess you might say collectivism, which you might frame as interdependence. So we're dependent, independent, then interdependent, and that requires us to both be able to navigate within ourselves these complex notions of guilt, shame, and conscience. And it's a, it's a huge task. It is an enormous task that we're all literally figuring out day by day. And that's why I think it's so exciting. That's why I've made it my life's mission is that what we're doing, we're finding our way into uncharted territory. Like, you know, we, we, we uh, there's a saying that, I mean, I don't know where it came from. I, I thought I read it sometime, but people attribute it to me. We were born too late to explore the earth and too soon to explore the stars. So this whole spirit of adventure is gone, right? No, no, no. We get to explore in here. We get to explore in here. 
And that's what we're doing every day. And how does that play out in the world? And so all these subjects are very related to that as we're figuring this out as we go. But I think we're all strong enough to do that. I agree. And I've used that quote quite often. Um, as a matter of fact, I uh, right here on my desk, one of the images is of the endurance, uh, Ernest Shackleton's ship trapped in the ice. Mm -hmm. And then right here, I have a print of the moon landing <laughs> yeah. to, rep to represent that explorer's need. Mm -hmm. oh, yeah. However, I do agree um, that we, we are too early to explore the far reaches of space. Mm -hmm. And we are way too late to explore anything unknown here on Earth. Mm -hmm. yeah. But our biggest unknown for most men today is themselves. Oh, yeah. yeah. I, I speak, I say that from experience. Oh, yeah. I think as important as self-identity is, there is also that need for a tribal identity. Who are, who are my people? Mm -hmm. The problem is when a tribe becomes much too large, they, they, they splinter and they break off mm -hmm. and they become these small factions that turn into infighting. And that's because the uh, personal and self-identity of those members becomes threatened with the greater identity of the tribe that no longer maybe has evolved to the point where it no longer really matches the personal identity of some of those members. Mm -hmm. And so there's a balance that needs to be struck between who you are and who your people are without compromising the integrity of either. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I, I think that's one of the biggest difficulties that a lot of men today face is they have this longing to belong to something bigger but they stop there and they don't they don't continue that path to say, I want to belong to something that is a bigger version of myself, not just simply bigger than myself. Mm, that's great. And that is and that is only for those that have figured out who and what they actually are. Once you get to that point, you you realize that the lone wolf fallacy of being you know, the damaged do-gooder, anti-hero, John McClane-type archetype guy, mm -hmm. it doesn't work. Right. It, it doesn't. doesn't. Yeah. But you end up with the idea that it does because that is what is portrayed in our entertainment. You know, you have, you can be this, and, and they really humanize the heroes, right? You can be this damaged, flawed individual and still be the hero and save the day all by yourself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. James Bond, Indiana Jones. Yeah. You know, he's drinking, he's scared of snakes, but somehow he manages to just pull it out in the end. But that's not the case of reality. It does take a village and a tribe of men to build a small society within a much larger society in which they can operate with a certain degree of sovereignty. Mm -hmm. um, to the point where the individual identity is still preserved. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And I, I think, you know, when it comes, when it comes to movies, um, I think the mistake, and this is a mistake that I made as well, you know, when I was, when I was traveling is you watch these movies and it's easy to mistake um, what's happening on screen for some version of reality. Like, Oh, 
monkey see, monkey do, right? Oh, look at this guy out there, James Bond or John McClane or Arnold Schwarzenegger or whoever, you know, oh, that's, that's how I have to be. And, and, you know, I tried that. Uh, it was, I had a lot of fun doing it, but ultimately like it cost me, it cost me a lot. It cost me a lot. And that when I finished that process, I realized that I also, I also needed and wanted tribe and I had no idea how to find it. Um, and so it, it is possible to go too far in one direction or the other. But I, I think, I think what is true and what resonates about those films and about the lone, the lone wolf hero is that the hero's journey is still a real thing. The hero's journey still exists in our lives and is something that we can only go on as individuals. Groups don't go on a hero's journey. Even when you read a fictional novel and you have character development from a collection of characters, um, you know, from pick your favorite, pick your favorite book, Moby Dick, for example, all the individual characters in that book have their own, um, have their own story, have their own arc, have their own growth or, or failure of growth, I guess you might say, that they have to, um, that they have to go on. So as long as we can separate what's fictional about the story, there, there's, there's no real Indiana Jones, there's no real commando, there's no real predator, because that's the fiction. From what's timeless and true, which is the need for men to go on an individual journey of self-actualization, which can happen in a thousand different ways. You know, it was like I traveled, I traveled for four years. Not everyone can do that. Some guys are like, I can't be away from my home for, for, for two weeks. You know, and I was like, oh, I just had a backpack because that's how I'm wired. And that was my journey. And what I try to get men to see now is there's a journey with your name on it that looks nothing like mine, but only you can go on that journey. Maybe it involves art. Maybe it involves creativity. Maybe it involves discovering you know, Norse paganism, maybe it involves weightlifting, maybe it does involve travel, maybe it involves entrepreneurship, but the hero's journey is timeless and eternal and lives in our hearts as men. And if we can use John McClane or Indiana Jones or whatever as inspiration to set on a, out on the journey that calls to us, then it's, then it's valuable. But if we think we have to imitate what we see on the screen, and that's the only framing of the hero's journey, then naturally, naturally we'll, you know, we won't be satisfied with that. So if we can, you know, find where the baby and the bathwater in are in, and they toss out the bathwater and keep the baby, I think we'll be good. I like that, and I have a somewhat different take. When it comes to exemplaries and paradigms, I don't feel like we as men need them to be humanized. I think we need them to be bigger and larger than life. Okay. Yes. Something that I mean, for example, Hercules. Now, yep. if you look at Hercules, obviously he had the story that no one really pays attention to, which was that he went mad. He was driven mad by Hera and he murdered his wife and his children and his hero's journey of destroying the Nemean lion and killing the Hydra. That was his, uh, it was his penance, right? It was his uh, quest for uh, uh, basically becoming renewed, right? And earning back his honor and his glory and his good name. But a lot of that, unless you read the ancient Greek stories, that gets swept away. And all you hear about is this giant of a man with amazing strength and virtue and bravery who goes out and he kills the monster. Mm -hmm. right? He is this shining ideal mm -hmm. that people should strive to be like. Now, we've got to this point in our society where idealism has been stepped on until it's dead. 
for the simple fact everyone can meet the standards of the ideal and that's unfair and if it's unfair it's inherently bad because not everyone benefits from it with that hyper utilitarian point of view but i think we need to bring those things back i think we need to re-deify our heroes mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i don't believe that we should humanize our heroes in any way like you know the john mcclain he's he's running barefoot his feet hurt and he overcomes and his feet are bleeding. Uh, yeah his, his feet are bloody and you know he hasn't eaten or slept and he's getting beat up and shot but he somehow saves the day yeah those things show ordinary people overcoming extraordinary circumstances mm -hmm. and that's amazing we still need those stories too I agree. But we shouldn't just stop there. We should have a bright and shining paradigm of what we should attempt to emulate. It's very much like the Christian point of view of what would Jesus do? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, everybody has heard that phrase, and everybody will know that not everyone can be exactly like Jesus. Only one guy. Only one guy. As, you know, and like I said, I'm a pagan and I and I still understand that part because I grew up in the Southern Baptist Church. Mm -hmm. But the idea and the concept behind it, and even in paganism, is to become as Christ-like or as God, deity, whatever like as you can in the quest for greatness. Mm -hmm. But too many have seen the quest for greatness as an exercise in futility. Mm -hmm. They see it as, well, I can never become the greatest. So the idea of the greatest should no longer exist. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's terrible. It is, because to me, it's it, it's that if you aim high and you miss, you still fall higher than the bar. Right. Yeah, completely. Or if you're aiming for the bare minimum and you miss, you're falling well below the average. And we've got to the point where we're celebrating everyone who is below the average. Oh, yeah. You know, I got out of bed and I brushed my teeth today. Everybody claps. You're brave. You're courageous. So courageous. Yeah. Much, yeah. I, I weigh 678 pounds and I put on a Speedo and walked to the grocery store. Well, shame on you. You hurt people. Don't yeah. do that. Don't do that. That's, that's not brave. Right. What, what, you know, brave is the single parent that somehow manages to keep food on the table, spend time with their kids and never complain about it while making sure that their kid has an education and comes out a good person in the end of it. That's brave. That's courage. People can quit from those things. Mm -hmm. Those are ordinary people placed in extraordinary circumstances that overcome. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But we were, again, we're now celebrating the below average subpar performance because it's the bare minimum and everyone can achieve it. Yeah. Absolutely. So I think we need to re-deify our ideals and our paradigms and our exemplaries to make them something that we cannot reach, but should still strive to become. Mm -hmm. And this brings us back to what we were talking about with guilt and shame, is that the notion of the hero that lives inside all of us, that lives in our society, can be a source of uh, power, inspiration, or it can be a source of guilt and shame. And this is this is up to the individual. And we'll just leave out the media because the media should be burned to the ground and buried and shot in the space or something like that. So we'll leave that out. Um, but it all depends how the individual, and let's talk, we'll talk about men because I think women is a separate conversation in many ways, how they relate to the, the hero and heroism within themselves, but we'll deal with men. So men can let, look at a hero, pick your favorite hero 
and they can look at that individual, let's just say Indiana Jones, and they can look at that and say, wow, that's really cool. I want to be that. And they can use that archetype or that image as a, as a tool to inspire them, or they can compare themselves to that and feel and feel guilt and shame like, oh, I'm, I'm not that, I suck, right? And so that's, that's, the, that's up to the individual man to relate to what is heroic inside himself. And I believe that that relationship of the man to the hero ties directly to, of, uh, to the relationship between the man and his father and how his father treated him as a boy. If the father raised him to be heroic in some way, was present, inspired the best in him, and fused that connection between who the boy is. And I'm not a father, so I'm speculating. Like, you know, I know that you're you have you have nine kids, which I think that's brave and in the in the best possible way. Uh, and so I, I I honor you for that very sincerely. Thank you for Thank and you're yeah, you're an inspiration to me regularly. You know, like I grew up thinking like, okay, two kids was like, you can have nine kids, like that's allowed. And so I think that's I think it's very awesome. So not in China. <laughs> Whew, tell me about it. So maybe you can speak more accurately to this from your own experience, but I think that it's the father's job to link the son, uh, probably the daughter as well, but the son as well, to here's what you are and you are not capable of doing this thing. Here's this thing that you want to do or this thing you want to be. You have to perceive yourself as being able to do that. And that connection, that inspiration that lives inside is, the, is in the father's connection with the son to say, yes, you can do that. You can find whatever is heroic for you, even if heroic is riding a bike, you know, with a two-wheeled bike. That's heroic to us. It could be heroic to a small boy. He's not swinging across vines or, you know, battling aliens in the jungle. But like, I'm, I rode a bike. I'm connected to what's heroic inside myself, and I trust it. And I don't treat it as a source of guilt and shame. And so I think it's up to the. I think it's up to fathers to build that, or for sons who didn't have fathers like that. I had a father who gave me some of that but certainly not to the man I, I wanted to become. That was my own desire to live. I, I truly credit, you know, I truly credit, um, it's a gift from God. I really don't know how else to phrase it. How did I become the man I am is a question that I ask myself. And really what it always comes down to from the very beginnings of when I started working on myself is I want to live. And I don't I, like capital L live, not like in, in, and there's two components of that. There's, I want to survive. And then there's like, I want to live. And I just had that. I don't know where it came from because it didn't come from my upbringing. And so for men who don't have fathers that give them that connection with what's best in themselves and teach them to treasure it and to, and to not be ashamed of it and to claim it, for men who don't have that like I did, they have to discover that desire to live within themselves. That's to be ignited somehow. I don't, I don't really know how, but I have a feeling that initiation, if we want to transition to talking about male initiation is a part of it. That's one of those things that connects men to their uh, boys, I guess, or young men to their eternal masculine. But this all goes into how do you relate to the hero outside yourself and how do you relate to the hero inside yourself? Is it something that you use to feel you or is it something that you use to frighten you or something that you use to shame you? And then how does that play into the media? All these things are connected and I think it all comes back to the father. And maybe you can speak to that with the relationship with your sons. Yeah, uh, I actually can. You know, I didn't have a father. My father died almost 30 years ago, and I maybe have a handful of memories of him. I don't wow. remember what he looks like because I don't have any photographs of him. I don't oh, remember wow. what his voice sounded like. Um, I, I just have this abstract image in my head of what he looked like in like flashes of memories. Mm -hmm. um, however, I did have uh, an adopted father. 
who took custody of me when I was 12 years old. Oh, wow. Okay. And he was the one who I learned all of the positive things about being a man from. Mm -hmm. I watched him work three jobs. I watched him try not to fall asleep at the wheel while keeping a promise to me that he would take me to the arcade or, you know, to go play skee ball or to the, to, to the park mm-hmm. or to go out and throw the ball with me. I, I saw him do those things. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until very, very much, much, much later uh, in my life that I was able to look back and I was already a father uh, myself. I think, it started to make sense to me after I had six or seven kids. Um, <laughs> better late than never. Yeah, better late than never. I'm a slow learner. What can I say? Me too. But I think it finally started making sense to me that for those people and those men out there who were like myself, who did not have a father, who were somehow searching, you know, in the dark for someone to be that father figure. A lot of men find it and they don't always find it in the most positive of places. And they, they, they suck in as much influence as they possibly can uh, from that father figure. And they become a version of that. It's very much to me, almost like an osmosis of creation between God and Adam. Mm-hmm. I like that. God created Adam in his image uh, or, uh, you know, as the way I see it, the gods created men in their image. The father, much more than like an earthly father, but that eternal masculine, that eternal father figure that every man looks for and every man wants to find is that exemplary paradigm in the sky. And whatever we see as that, whether it be a positive influence, whether it be a negative influence or a so-so influence that is humanized and flawed, somehow deep in our subconscious, I believe that we equate it with a God. And I mean that in the sense that a boy's first God is his father. Absolutely. A boy's first concept of God is his father. Mm-hmm. There is so only so much a father can teach his son and only so much a father can do in the eyes of his son before he runs into his human limits. Absolutely. It's incumbent upon a father to be able to bridge that gap and be the bridge that connects his son to the ultimate father, whatever you believe that to be. 100%. Love it. I love it. He has to be the mediary between the two. Mm-hmm. In the eyes of his son, a father is God until the son grows to the point he becomes human. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He can see and his then, And then he can see his father is human. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then it's the job of that father to point mm-hmm. upward and say, there's more than what I am that you can still strive to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And having having never had a father uh, until way later in life, I was able to make that connection and realize that I needed to level up my game because I was not even living at the point where 
uh, I was at my limit yet. I was doing the bare minimum because I didn't know what a dad was outside of what I'd seen on sitcom TV, which was, we could go into that, which he's a buffoon, right? Right, the ridiculous dad. The ridiculous dad. But yeah, I 100% agree that it all comes down to a father, whether it be a spiritual father, a corporeal father, a biological, a father figure, a coach, whoever it is that is the biggest influence on a young boy, Mm -hmm. which will always be a man. It will never be a woman. He can be influenced by his mother, by his sister, by his aunt. However, it's human nature to epitomize and emulate those that look like us more than those that don't I agree and that will always be the one thing that a child especially a boy will turn to now as for my daughter thank god i only have one because i have no idea what i'm doing in raising her thank god my wife is a girl and she can help me with that that's great all i can do is present myself as the kind of man that I would be comfortable with my daughter bringing to meet me and saying, Hey dad, he wants to marry me outside of that. I I don't know anything else, but it's still that I have to become that intermediary between an ultimate and eternal father Mm. and my children. That's great. That's beautiful. I mean, that's the, that's wisdom from the father from real father right there is, um, you know, as a boy grows up, it makes sense that he would see his father as his, his biological father as God or his, you know, whatever father is in the home as God in a way. And I just want to comment on something that Zach, the, the family office said, you are made in God's image. What a shame it would be for fathers to set a poor image for their children to emulate. I mean, that's, I mean, I, I recently met Dr. Warren Farrell, who wrote a book called The Boy Crisis. And for everyone listening, I highly recommend this book very strongly because he lays out all the terrible things that happen specifically to boys around, um, excuse me, around um, fatherless homes and, and, uh, and how important it is for boys in particular, both boys and girls suffer as a result of fatherless homes, but boys suffer in very, very particular ways. And uh, I recommend that book to begin digging into it. Also, there's a great section by Dr. John Gray who wrote Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus, and it's all these natural cures for ADHD and uh, it's really strange, but so many of those cures for ADHD that he's identified uh, and are medically documented are the things that we talk about in this world of men's development around, around personal health. Uh, we've already discovered them. We're already doing them around diet and, and stuff like that. So it's like, oh, okay. So he's discovered things that we already know and, and realizing the specific effects that they have on boys. Isn't that amazing? So again, I really recommend The Boy Crisis by, um, by Dr. Warren Farrell for this reason. Uh, but I, I really, Jeff, I really appreciate your father's wisdom saying that you recognize that um, that you will, that at a certain point in your son's lives, um, perhaps that's already occurred. They will see you as what you are, which is a man, a human being with flaws and and who makes mistakes and and has uh, ups and downs and everything. And and that to bring out what's best in your sons, you need to link them to something higher. And I think we've absolutely lost that as a culture. We've absolutely in so many different ways. And the notion of orienting oneself um, to something higher, however that comes about from the individual, I think is especially important. It's especially important for everyone, but I think men in particular need to be able to point to something higher and in many ways learn to silence the part of themselves that's been so heavily cultivated, which is their rational questioning mind. 
um, because once we get it, begin getting into notions of religion and spirituality, these are areas that the rational mind can't go into. This is a felt sense that lives in our bodies and that lives in our hearts. And so many men, myself included, are raised to feel from the neck up. It's all what's it's what you think. It's what you think. Well, what is my heart? I don't I don't know. I have feelings. Uh, what does my body tell me? Well, my emotions is my heart. And my feelings are in my body. I don't, I don't know, but I think with my head. It's like in order to have a, a deeply spiritual experience, it doesn't happen up here. It happens in your heart and it happens in your body. And I think I think many men who really would like spirituality to, to feel something spiritual in some in some way, something religious even, get very much stuck in their head. And that's another job of the father is to help guide. Like I grew up, you know, my value as a son was my performance in school. That was that was it. I mean, I grew up in a family that was our value. So I learned to get real smart in my head. And it wasn't until I got in my 20s or even my 30s that I began being guided into uh, into my body and past the, the 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 feminized feelings that I had been encouraged to feel from my heart and just discover what's really inside my heart was a very powerful moment for me. And so all these all these things are connected again to the father and what we as men identify as our father, whether it's our biological father. I would describe myself as always having been a man of faith, um, uh, and and. and Maybe someone might describe, describe me as a, as a godly man. I certainly aspire to be. And now as we're talking through this, I think it was probably that, that connection that I've always had to faith and religion and spirituality that served as my father to guide me towards my own masculinity with my, my, my own dad who didn't learn many of those things, didn't, didn't pass them on to me. Um, and so I, I thank you for helping me find an answer to a question I've been struggling with for a really long time. Leave it to a father of eight boys to, to have that knowledge for me. Cheers to you, sir. Hey, no problem. I, <laughs> I do what I can. Uh, I think for the most part, a lot of men who will watch this, who have, uh, who follow your work, who follow my work, a lot of them had those, those kinds of fathers, if they had a father yeah. that just didn't know those things. Oh yeah. That's they didn't learn these things or they fell into the classic, especially if it's our generation, right? The eighties dad, you know, the one that would squint with a cigarette pinched in his teeth with his hands on his hips as he stared at the lawnmower, wondering why it wouldn't start, you know, that guy, yeah. uh, who was the hard, uh, stoic, I can fix anything tough as nails guy who didn't know how to articulate and didn't realize the importance, uh, of, being able and learning how to articulate those things to their children. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so you grew up, I mean, if you grew up with an eighties dad, you grew up awesome because your dad just let you do whatever, as long as you didn't kill someone or yourself. Mm -hmm. I didn't but, have dad. but there was the, the one downside of it all, which was when you went to go talk to your dad, and you wanted to ask him a question. And I've heard this from a lot of men, especially uh, men in my generation. Well, that's just one of those things, son. Right. And they left it at that because there was no way for them to come out because of course there's a stereotype of it's not popular to talk about what you were just talking about. What you feel down here, the, the, the pragmatism and the rational side of everything gets also influenced by the stereotype of, well, men shouldn't talk about how things make them feel. Men shouldn't talk about how things uh, influence their childhoods or any of the damage that they're holding on to. Mm -hmm. I mean, I had a lot of baggage not having a father growing up. 
you know, and, and I carried a lot of that over onto my children until I learned. And I'm grateful that I did learn what I did. But the problem now is that we have this vast amount of knowledge for these men that grew up with fathers that just didn't have it. They have all of it, but they're still not actively teaching it and passing it on to other men. And they're not passing it on to their sons or even acknowledging and acting upon that knowledge in a way that they influence their sons to do those same things. And so it just becomes a cycle where things continue um, based on an antiquated idea of men should just build shit and shut up. Right. I, I, I hear it all this a sense that many men don't trust themselves and that's a real problem. I, I didn't trust myself and it took me many years and many hard lessons for me to recognize that my desires for my life are fundamentally good. I had had this idea that my desires as a man were bad. I don't know where this idea came from. It was just living in me so subconsciously that I finally had to get to the root of it. Some life circumstances pushed me to the point where I had to really reckon with what I wanted and then trust its goodness and, and trust myself. And I think that there's an epidemic of men not trusting themselves. And I think a lot of that comes from how divided we are from each other, that we don't gather in, in physical tribes anymore like we used to. And the, the physical tribes that we do gather in don't have rituals, don't have rituals to connect us to each other and to connect us to something higher and uh, to spirit in whatever way that means something to the tribe. And also, you know, with regard to men and their, and their feelings and their emotions, I believe very much that men should express their feelings and their emotions to each other in private, in a sacred container. I've been transformed by men's groups, by sitting in circles with men who were effectively strangers. We weren't friends in, our, in the outside world where I could walk in, sit down with them, be assured of confidentiality and say, hey, this is what's going on in my life and this is how I feel about it. And give it a chance to verbalize, to hear myself say it. It's just living in my head to hear myself say, I was in a relationship with a woman for 10 years. I felt zero sexual attraction to her at all, none, not even a little bit. And imagine being a young man in a relationship you're just not sexually attracted to and having to cut off that whole side of myself for 10 years. And so it wasn't until I sat down in a circle of men who I had to spend... I guess it was like a year and a half with, you know, like 15 months before I finally, finally had the courage to say the thing that was on my mind every minute of every day. Guys, I'm not sexually attracted to my girlfriend. I really needed a space to say that. But where I didn't need to say that is online, like to the public or on some sort of teary confessional. I need to sit down in a circle of men and be heard and hear myself say these things. And only by hearing myself say these things could I begin building the bridge to trust myself, trust my instincts, because then my brothers would check me, not on that particular issue, but in other issues I would share. And they'd be like, that doesn't sound right. What are you not telling us? Oh, okay, well, maybe you're wrong here. It's like, oh, okay, I had a piece of that I didn't know. So I rebuilt this trust to myself bit by bit, weaving this thread into my own, my own being, I guess you might say, of trust in myself. And now that I trust myself, I trust my thoughts. I trust my heart. I've worked hard to purify my inner life. I've worked very hard at that. Uh, and that's been part of my travels and part of my own personal journey we can get into. But to purify what's happening in me so that I know that what's happening in me is fundamentally good 
and that I feel comfortable passing on my values, not just to my children, should I be fortunate to have them, but to the men around me, because I fundamentally trust myself because I've worked on that. And that's something that we all need as men is to forge that link of trust with ourselves. And I think, our, I think if, our, if our culture does anything really, really well, is it shames men and guilts them into not trusting themselves. Like there's this meme going around, men only want one thing and it's disgusting. And you know, it's, it's so great, it's on Instagram. And so now, you know, it, it was like men catcalling some girl originally, some feminist meme, and now it's men like with families and a house in the countryside or something like that. And it's like, to me, that's like all about men learning to trust themselves and, and their desires. And once we have that, once we have our trust in ourselves, then men can look into our eyes and see that we are trustworthy. And that's when a brotherhood is formed. And when two men come together in brotherhood and trust each other, oh, anything, literally anything becomes possible. Because to your lone wolf point, no man, no man, regardless of how media portrays it, accomplishes any great act alone. He's always has a team. Even the great entrepreneurs, you know, whether you look up to Steve Jobs or not, is is, you know, he's still he's still held up as doing great things. He didn't do that stuff alone. It's not all on him. He had a, he had thousands of people behind him. You know, Tom Brady. Congratulations, Tom Brady. You're the quarterback of a team. You're not out there on you're not out there on the field alone. And so once man, but uh, that team functions well because of trust. And you know, and and I think as many of us know, when we trust ourselves, we trust our brothers, and brothers trust us. We come together and we become a force to be reckoned with. And that's what's really powerful and exciting. What's going on right now, from my perspective. I agree. And I've got this comment from John Rennie on the screen here, where he says, I learned the most in the time I spent hunting and fishing with my father. It was the time we actually connected. Yeah. Now, you, you were talking about you walked into a room. It was full of men that you had to trust. And you were able to finally say, I have this issue and here's how I feel about it. Yeah. It. I'm willing to bet it didn't go exactly as that. I'm thinking that you can correct me if I'm wrong, but there was a group of men and you were all, because look, you get any group of men together, you start doing something. Mm -hmm. You're being active. You're building, you're hiking, you're walking. You were conquering or doing some kind of physical activity. And those are when those questions come out. Those are when those topics come up and when men connect most. That's why I I laugh uh, at a lot of, uh, people who go, well, you know, men should go to therapy more. We do. We just call it smoking a cigar around a bonfire uh, or swapping stories beside a pool in Orlando at 3 a.m. Mm-hmm. Sure. You know, that's that's what we call it. That, that is our therapy. Um, you know, John said, you know, he spent the most time learning when he was hunting and fishing with his father. That is that is a physical and cerebral thing. You're you're dominating nature. Right. That is that is man's will and power being imposed upon a much bigger force than he is. And you're doing it together with other men or another man. And you may not even say an entire word to each other that fishing trip. But because you've gone through that thing together, you develop that connection. Mm-hmm. Right. When people say that men have a tendency to bottle everything up and not express what needs to be expressed. I think what they're really saying is men don't express themselves like women and we want them to. That's correct. But but we can't, that is not how we operate. Mm -hmm. 
I, if I have an issue that it's something as a father or a husband or a son or a brother or whatever it is, I can't go to anybody who isn't capable of being a father, a husband, a son, or a brother about that issue. But I'm also not going to walk up and say, hey, Will, uh, I have this issue, and here are my feelings on the matter, and I just feel so. No, I'm, we're going to be doing something. We're going to be driving, golfing, talking, walking, working out. Man, have you ever had this? Da, 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 da. And that starts those conversations. It's not a therapist to a couch kind of situation because men, they connect through a crucible. They connect while running a gauntlet of some kind together. Mm-hmm. Was that the case for you when that thing, when that happened with uh, the group of men you were talking about? Were you all actively doing something together or did you just walk in and say, hey, I got to talk? Oh, no, this was this is a this was a circle of men that were sitting down in a therapist's office like it was facilitated by a therapist. So it wasn't just a bunch of guys sitting in a circle. There was a there was one guy who was not participating, who was making sure the conversation stayed on track. It was directed. And, and I, I hear this a lot. And you're absolutely right. Like men absolutely do need to get into the woods and, and need to and need to do something and need to be active. And I think that there's also room for different kinds of men. I happen to be a very verbal kind of guy. I've been hugely blessed and benefited by therapy um, because it was something that I needed because there are things that I needed to talk out, but not just talk out. So if you think of think of the psyche like um like layers, like like uh like the earth, like layer. Let me put my glass down. So there are things that live. Uh, in our bodies, physically in our bodies, pains, traumas, memories, things like that that live in our bodies. And our, there's all these layers built on top of it, right? So like, imagine you're a little kid and something terrible happens. For example, you you lost your father and I had various traumas in my life as well. That trauma lives at a deep, deep subconscious level. And there are all these layers of the psyche that are built on top of it, which get to our cerebral cortex so that we interact with the world with, right? So the purpose of therapy, and this is not how most therapists do their job. Most, the way most therapists do their job, in my judgment, is criminal. But the purpose of therapy and all different kinds of therapy well done is to begin opening up these layers of the psyche to get at what's really, really at the depth of what's going on inside a person and to take that out and to take that out and then to put yourself back together again, right? So that's been my experience in therapy, and that's absolutely allowed me to transform as a man. Not all men are activated verbally. I'm a hyperverbal person. I'm a hyperverbal person. I need to talk. I've got friends who like who I've had to explain to them. I talk through I think through talking. I need to verbalize. How do I know what I think until I hear myself say it? That works for me. And that works for a small subset of men, including the men that I that I, some of the men that I was in the circle with. So I think for me to walk in the forest and to hunt and to fish would be to would be profoundly bonding with my friends. But at the bottom of it, I needed to talk out what was going on with me. And so I think that there's room for different approaches for different people. And I, I don't want to get um, for myself into a place where I feel prescriptive about like, well, what I really needed to do was just go fishing and sit with my buddy. Well, I didn't have any friends who went fishing. I, you know, I didn't have any friends that wanted to go into what was going on in the deepest hearts of themselves. That I wasn't brought up with those values. I needed to talk first to find out what was inside myself. And then I went out, once I sorted that out, then I went out into the world and I sailed, I've climbed mountains. I've, like you said, I've, you saw me, I trained with the, the uh, it's called the Wudang Elixir Sword at a monastery in China. You know, I've, I've trekked across the desert. I've done all kinds of things. So, and all those things were hugely valuable and I was certainly capable of acting and I proved that to myself 
over and over and over again. But first I, I needed to talk. And I think that there's room for both, though not all men are going to be activated verbally in the same way that I am. But I, th I think, so what I say to men is like, find what works for you. If it's, if it's hunting and fishing with your friends, if that's the space where you feel comfortable to share what's really going on with you. I mean, understand that this was, this was fundamental to me. This wasn't like, oh, I'm mad at my boss or I'm feeling sad, you know, because of sports. This was my life, the woman who might end up being my life partner, I feel no sexual attraction to, zero. I had to cut off that whole side of myself. So the, dif the difficulty with that is that's not just about me, that's also about her. So if I'm talking to my friends, my best friend about this, for example, not only does he really not need to know about my sex life, potentially, I don't different men approach that differently, but also it's like he might look at her differently and then that begins to affect our whole social circle. I need to talk to strangers, people who weren't invested in me so I could be more honest than I was otherwise able to be. And so this was, this was the core point of my life. I had essentially cut off a whole side of my being for 10 years. It was extremely painful. It was extremely painful. And so in that, I, I definitely needed to, I needed to talk about it in a way that I don't think hunting or fishing would have done at that stage of my life. Maybe if I had grown up with those things, I would have known how to communicate that, that way. But I, at that stage of my life, I had to learn how to communicate that way, um, you know, non-verbally because I wasn't raised with that. And so I think there's room for different kinds of men to need different things to sort out what's going on in their lives. That's certainly true for me. Man, I, I agree with all of that. I, um more of what I was leaning to with the statement about the, the doing something, being active in hunting and fishing was all that was um, very much in line with uh, how you said it's the layers of the psyche that need to be broken down. Opened up. Uh, yeah. Or it need to be opened up. So when you get to a certain place of where you can feel comfortable for you, I can speak to these strangers that have zero emotional investment in myself or my girlfriend I know they weren't strangers. I had known them for like a year and a half. We sat every Monday for a year and a half. So they weren't strangers, but they just weren't friends in my life. They weren't random people. These were guys that I trust. I built up a lot of trust with them. Okay. I, I, I got you. However, they didn't know you guys personally, correct? No, they didn't. Like not, not Right. And so you were able to say, I'm not sexually attracted to my girlfriend. These, mm -hmm. these guys haven't met your girlfriend. You know, yeah. you're not, you don't, you're not risking, you're not risking the, the dynamic of the relationship there. Right. Yeah. Right. And that allowed you to feel that level of comfort, safety, whatever you want to call it. The same thing is what I was talking about with some men need to get into an environment, whether if we're working out, like you and I can go to the gym together while we're working out, I might go, Hey, Will. You know, one of the hardest things about being a dad, just because I'm in that environment that I feel comfortable in, and it allowed that one layer of the psyche to open up to where I wouldn't just be walking down the side of the street uh, and bump into you. Hey, Will, by the way, I have a question. Yeah. Random. It, you, you know, you, you needed to get into that space. And a lot of men need that exact same thing of oh, yeah. where they feel comfortable. And yeah. like you said, you can't get comfortable alone because then your head's going in all these different places and you're thinking about contradicting yourself you're thinking in circles and you're arguing with yourself and i've done this plenty of times because i was an island for a long time you were an island for 10 years yeah. uh. when you get into that space of you know what i'm comfortable here i can trust these people and there's still a safety net you know if you're my buddy 
there's still a safety net that I would have with a guy that I would say something personal about with is that it's a bro code. I know he's not going to talk behind my back and he's not going to betray my confidence. So that layer of trust and that safety net is still there. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I, I, so with how it worked for you, how it worked for John uh, and it's probably a combination of both of those things as well as many others for a lot of other men. But that was the point I was trying to make is you get into that environment where you're most comfortable and men are most comfortable active. You were kind of acting as it were by going to this meeting. It was an active thing. You're going to this meeting, you're meeting with these people that you're doing a thing together. Mm -hmm. And so you were still all doing something that allowed you to break down and open up that one layer that allowed you to bring forth some things that have been bothering you for a while. And a lot of men never get that opportunity because they remain isolated because they're told over and over and over that the things they think, the things they are, just like you growing up in San Francisco, the things they believe and the things they feel are all innately wrong and they should be ashamed of them. That's right. Because they don't have fathers telling them otherwise. <laughs> because they don't have a father to tell them or show them otherwise. That's right. That's right. All these things are so deeply connected. And I, thank you for that clarification. In fact, you, you made me realize something that was, you know, really cool about my experience was that, <clears throat> you know, like, like you, there was a component of community and there's a community, there's a component of, <clears throat> excuse me, brotherhood, intimacy in a way. Like we could be working out if we had known each other for a really long time. And I could say, and I could say to you, God, you know, Jeff, I don't know how to say this, but you know, I just got to say this. Like, I'm just not attracted to my girlfriend. And even assuming that you knew her, if you and I had built up a long enough relationship, even if, even if you didn't know her, if you were just, excuse me, sorry, even if you didn't know her, even if we were just like workout buddies, but we had built up this rapport of trust where I felt like, okay, I can actually say, I can actually say the true thing. And men do need that. However it comes about for them, you know, and, and I think, one of the nows that I'm thinking back to the man that I was and the men who were in the circle with me, we probably all didn't have great relationships with men in our lives or our fathers. I can't speak, I can't speak for, um, for the nature of the guys in the circle of their friends, but I seem to recall they all had very strange or strained relationships with their fathers. And in San Francisco, a lot of men don't have a lot of male friends, right? It's just not how it is. And so I can imagine that like the other men in the circle, I probably needed some rehabilitation with my relationship with other men and my relationship as a man and being able to sit down and talk, you know, was what I, was what I needed. And, and that worked for me. And I was fortunate to find that I also went looking for it because that's who I am. And I can imagine that there would actually be a need to create organizations that help men do something similar in the ways that work for them, like male relationship rehabilitation, like, okay, now we're all going to go out into the forest and maybe we'll fish, maybe we'll hunt, maybe we'll hike. You know, it's men doing these things so we can re-begin, we can begin to rediscover ourselves as men and other men and reformulate these bonds of trust that many of us didn't have the ability um, ability to grow up with. Like, I didn't grow up with that at all. I was horribly bullied as a kid. I was terrible. You know, I was small for my size and, until I wasn't. Like, I remember being bullied in fifth and sixth grade really, really bad and like really bad. Like, I was the untouchable kid on the playground. You know, like even the cool kids, even the uncool kids wouldn't talk to me. Like it was pretty bad. And then suddenly it stopped in seventh and eighth grade and I couldn't figure out why. And I asked my dad, he's like, oh, because you got really tall overnight. I'm like, oh, that, that makes a lot of sense, right? But like you just that really- You just to stand out more. 
Right, exactly. Well, it's like, you know, I was, I was I just, you know, had a growth spurt, right? And, but I, I wasn't a target anymore. But those years of bullying, fifth and sixth grade, I was, what, 10 or 11 years old, 12 or 13. Those were my earliest, you know, relationships with men. And that was when I discovered they were not to be trusted. My dad had his own stuff going on as well. And so I needed a lot of rehabilitation. And so I can see that there's probably room for that for a lot of men as well for the lone wolf mentality, you know, that lives in a lot of men that, um, that can be very powerful if, embraced in the right way, but also very embraced in the right way, but also very isolating. So that's a really interesting idea. Like, how can we begin rehabilitating men's relationships to each other with that expressed intention, right? Do you have a negative impression of yourself as a man? Do you have a negative impression of other men? Come with us on this thing. Let's work it out. You know, no phones, you know, we're going to be honest with each other. Like that, that could be a very powerful opportunity for some men if done in the right way. I believe so. And, you know, it's probably one of the biggest damn shames uh, to ever come about in Western culture. Because I, in my experience, and, I, and I've, I've met a few people who come from Western cultures, they don't have the same stigma as has been developed here in the West as men hanging out together and forming intimate bonds on a brotherhood like level mm -hmm. as we do here. It seems at some point over the last 200 years, mm -hmm. groups of men hanging out together. Well, obviously for one, when groups of men start hanging out together, they start to afford their loyalty to each other much more than the greater entity, whether it be the community, the state, the nation, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. I'm there now. There are people that I consider to be my people in my tribe that if they needed a dollar, I would give it to them over saving America from destruction because these are my people and, and all of the Americans are not. You're one of them, Will. That's awesome. Thank you. You're one of them. However, with the... I can't remember the exact decade, but when homosexuality started becoming a little more known, this is mid mid 1800s when it started becoming a little more well known. Mm -hmm. uh, it was immediately because it was always that one thing like, oh, those guys are uh, like you, you know, they're they're heretics and they're into buggery and you know it's a crime against the crown and this and that and the other, right? See, see I, I have a gay son. I don't care. He's like probably one of the coolest kids ever. I love him. So, I, but however, the relationship between a man and another man on a brother-like level has been, oh yeah, conflated with homosexuality Terrible. and this this fear of being portrayed as a homosexual mm -hmm. when homosexuality was such an extreme taboo that it was an antisocial behavior when yeah. it was an illegal behavior and so you started seeing men distance themselves from other men and you started seeing the strains on the relationships between men mm -hmm. and it, it, even today it kind of gets made brought back in with the term bromance oh, like, oh you oh. bromances and oh you got a dude crush and things like that oh. it's nothing more than a revival of that culture when People were afraid of homosexuals, like like they like it was some kind of contagious thing that you could catch, mm -hmm. and they didn't, and they were afraid of being associated with homosexuals because they might be thought of as one, and all the relationships between men started to collapse, and men became more and more isolated, and this created 
what has become endemic at this point mm-hmm. of isolated man sitting alone, looking out the window, needing somebody to throw a damn ball with or talk to while they change some friggin' spark plugs. Mm-hmm. And they don't have that because it was demonized by that one stupid arbitrary thing all these decades ago. And it's carried over in Western culture. And you don't see that very much in Eastern cultures, I've noticed. The, the whole thing around homosexuality? The, the vilification of uh, male friendships and being portrayed oh. uh, in a negative light. You see a group of dudes together. Those are just a cool group of dudes everybody wishes they were a part of. Mm-hmm. Or here, someone who doesn't have that kind of relationship with a, a, a male tribe of friends. Oh, look at you all. You, there's a bunch of dudes hanging out and it's a bromance. Da, da, da. That's terrible. It, it's terrible. And because of those things and the insecurities of men and at one point in time, the social pressure of being associated or not associated with, uh, you know, one sexual preference or the other, it caused the collapse of male relationships across Western culture. Yeah, I think a lot of those things are related. Uh, there's a book by the philosopher Michel de Montaigne. Who, uh, who wrote a book called On Friendship. And what he writes in this book is that the a true friendship between two men, a, a true, like a true capital F friendship between two men is more powerful than a love than the love for a man and his wife. And he doesn't mean that in any sort of homoerotic way. He means that the, the intimacy of, of brotherhood and you know these words are all contaminated with notions of romance just as they are. So we even lack a language to describe it. But it's a it's a wonderful essay. It's a little slim book. You can get on Amazon on friendship. It's about eight dollars, and it's it's really beautiful the way that he describes what's possible between between two men. And as you rightfully say, when when men start to get together and form bonds of loyalty and honor to each other, they begin asking questions. They begin comparing notes. They begin wondering if the things that they're being told are true. Like that's where the red pill, this whole red pill manosphere came from. Is it came from the pickup artist world? Because the pickup artists discovered that it was actually quite easy to sleep with desirable women, even if you were a weird-looking, goofy kind of dude. If you just ran game on them, they'd sleep with you. And so once the internet sort of started to come around and become popular in the early 2000s, men started comparing notes. And they realized, like, well, wait a minute. Like, why is this working? This shouldn't work. Everything we've been told about women might be a lie. And so what the red pill subreddit came came from and men started working it out for themselves. And then the whole red pill exploded with, you know, Rollo Tomasi and many other groups like that. That came about as a men as a as a result of men comparing notes about women. Societal structures of authoritarianism um, are get challenged by men coming together in bonds of in bonds of brotherhood. And that's the great thing about so many movies we love. That's Braveheart. That's why we love Braveheart. That's why we love the Lord of the Rings. You know, there's, of course, individual stories of masculine development and accomplishment and heroism, but the Lord of the Rings is fundamentally a story of brotherhood, of different races of men, of different, of different tribes coming together to defeat evil. And the, the defeating evil is not possible unless all the races come together. That's the fellowship. Men, hobbits, uh, uh, elves, dwarves, the Rohirrim, you know, the, all these guys, they all come together and they all, they all have to come together to defeat evil. And so this is a fundamental thing that lives in all of us as men. And so naturally, naturally, everything in culture, which is hyper-feminized, which doesn't trust men, and we can get into the roots of that, I suppose is a whole other conversation, but it's all designed. That's three more episodes altogether right there. 
in. So, uh, you know, it, it's designed almost, probably not even almost, it's designed to undermine male friendships, male relationships, father to son, sons to each other, brother to brother, friend to friend. Every, if all the combined force of everything culture has for the past 60 years, probably more, has been designed to weaken and destroy male friendships and male relationships with everything it has, right? And what's so incredible about this moment that we're living through is we are all discovering that, let's just say, 100 years of programming can be shattered like that, like that. And now we're all, now we're all coming together in unity, and it can never be broken unless by our own mistakes. We certainly won't be shattered by some outside force. And that's what's really powerful about what we're all experiencing is all the engines of culture can be designed to destroy men, can be designed to destroy the masculine human spirit, but we can reclaim it almost overnight. And that shows how powerful we are as beings. That proves to me how powerful we are. Imagine all the billions of dollars and effort and time and energy that's been designed, targeted specifically to undermine our trust in ourselves and each other. And with exposure to a few books and a couple YouTube videos and some time in the woods with friends, we can discover what a lie it is and transform our lives almost overnight. That's a testament to the human spirit. That's a true testament to the human spirit. And, and that's why I'm, I'm really excited. As hard as these days are, as, 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 challenging as, it, as challenging as they are for all of us, I'm very grateful to be alive right now, to be witnessing this and to be living it. And that's why I say, you know, the Renaissance of Men, my tagline is, you are the Renaissance. The Renaissance is not happening outside of us. You can't look around and see it. You know, it's not like the Italian Renaissance where it's happening in art and architecture and everything. No, the Renaissance that we're living through is happening through us as men. It only happens through us as men. You are the Renaissance. I am the Renaissance. Everyone listening right now, congratulations. You are the Renaissance. Some and some have been doing walking this road for a long time. Some are some are new to it. But it's an honor to be walking with all of you because we're creating something truly special, the rebuilding of a potentially a new civilization, a new approach to masculinity based in all the best information we have. Like what does Jack Donovan say? The world seat. We are sitting on the Ritzgalf, I think he says, is the way the word is pronounced. We are sitting on the world seat and we're able to look all the way into the past at the best of masculinity and choose the very best of it, including the, including the contemporary day, and build it into something that we're going to take into the future. And there's no stopping that process. That process cannot be stopped right now. The energy is too high and it's growing every day. I think there's only one thing that can stop it. Okay. And that is if the ideas stop being shared. Yeah, okay. Hmm. Okay, finish. I, I want to respond to that, but okay, go ahead. It's essentially a culture war. And a culture war isn't fought with blades or bullets. It's fought with ideas. Okay. And ideas, and I love this quote from V for Vendetta, ideas are bulletproof. Mm-hmm. All we have to do to continue the path that we're on with the renaissance and the revitalization of true masculinity and bringing about virtues and values uh, in real men is to continue to spread these ideas. But we have to be more active and more proactive than we are reactive. I don't, I don't think it's enough. For guys like me, for guys like you, for guys like uh, Zach Small of a Family Alpha, guys like Jack Donovan, it's not enough 
for guys like us to just say what we have to say in response to something that's been said by those that are looking to undermine everything positive about masculinity and about men. Mm-hmm. We need to be more proactive. So when you, when you have these creators like yourself, like myself, like all of those others that you mentioned that are members of the men's movement, being proactive and putting their voice on paper, putting their voice on video, putting their voice on audio and sharing these ideas that, that can only be stopped if people that they're, if the people that they're talking to stop sharing those ideas with others, mm-hmm. we all love our, uh, our echo chambers, right? I love talking to guys like you and Zach and Jack and, and Adam and all these other guys. I love talking to you mm. because we all see things relatively within the same purview of reality. But there are those out there that have never heard these ideas because, as you've already said, it should be burned to the ground and shot into space. The state-sponsored media is doing a much better job of spreading their ideas and spreading their views to the masses because they have the spotlight and they have the resources. For now. For now. now. We can match them. We can beat them. We just have to be the ones to be proactive in taking these ideas that we believe and the values that we possess and share them with everyone we can by embodying them, by living them, by being the epitome of these values. So good. And being that one that will venture, the the title of the show is The Perimeter. In order to defend the perimeter uh, of the tribe, you're going to have to go out beyond those flickering border fires into the darkness with a torch and slay and conquer new darkness to expand that perimeter. If you want the tribe to grow defending the perimeter is defend. The perimeter is the tagline for the show, but to defend it, you have to expand it because if it's not, you can't wait until they're at the door. You can't wait until they're inside to start fighting back. You have to take your light, you have to take the border fires, and you have to extend them further into the darkness and spread that fire, cast that light further. For those who haven't had the opportunity to hear the ideas, who for those who haven't had the opportunity to see the kinds of lives that are possible for them, should they only hear something they've never heard before that isn't being piped in through the airwaves like some propaganda campaign from, from Goebbels. If they hear these ideas, maybe we can do enough to inspire them to share those ideas as well. But we will all die, and the ideas will die with us if we stop sharing them and the ideas stop being shared to those who haven't heard them yet. I'm. Once this video is on YouTube, I'm going to download it, and I'm going to cut out that section, and I'm going to play that every day. That was awesome. Thank you. Thank you. I, I, I could not agree more. Like, this is like high five. Give you a big hug. Like, high five. Bro hug. We got this, man. We got this. A hundred percent. A thousand percent. We got this. A thousand percent. We got this. And all the men listening and watching, like, we got this. Absolutely. Not a doubt in my mind. It's the only way forward. That's we right. We can't stay in these echo chambers in our own little safe spaces, because if we do that, 
the people around us, uh, they're going to continue to fall. We can't change a culture unless we're influencing culture. And we and the only way to influence culture is to bring about the Renaissance, like you've been talking about, and subvert the status quo by showing them that there's something different. Yes. That's why, that's why I love the metaphor of the Renaissance, because the Renaissance was painters, sculptors, musicians, engineers, merchants, explorers. It was all these different men doing all these different things. And they didn't even conceive of themselves as a Renaissance at the time. It was just, this is just what we're doing because we have this new emphasis on the individual because the dark ages, which weren't that dark, but nonetheless, they were, they were very collectivist. They were feudal. And so now you had the rise of an Italian city-states, real wealth and prosperity that led to uh, that led to patronage of the arts because the the various uh, you know feudal lords in some ways the city-states you know they started competing in culture and so they started funding all these artists who started experimenting with all these ideas and things sort of got this critical mass going that absolutely transformed culture but all the different men were approaching it from all these different ways and that's why I chose the metaphor of the Renaissance because some men write books some men paint art some men get speeches some men make, make YouTube videos you know, some men do, some men lead retreats, some men shoot guns, some men rule jujitsu. The totality of what all these men are doing and cultivating and redefining and rediscovering and uh, re, uh, I guess rebirthing masculinity today, that complexity is what makes this a renaissance, not a revolution, not a reform. It is a renaissance, it is a rebirth into something new that's coming that's going to be amazing. And the way that I know it's amazing is look at all the men that we consider friends, that we spend our time reading and learning from. Are they not amazing? Zach Small is amazing. I'm loving that that guy's here. I've talked to that guy a couple times on my podcast. Thank you for that, Zach, by the way, I haven't forgotten. And we had an amazing time and he inspires me. Gentleman Mystic I see is in here as well. He inspires me as well. Jeff, you inspire me. Evil Academy is in here. He inspires me. Like the men that we have around us are like men that have never existed before because we're integrated physically. We're physically fit and capable. We're integrated emotionally in that we can feel very deeply and very passionately. We're integrated intellectually in that we're careful about the things that we read and consume and we're integrated spiritually and that we're connected to something higher. That man that the possibility of being that man is new in human history or a very small percentage of men through history have been able to achieve that. Now we can bring it to millions of men around the world. It's something new that is going to be born that we've never seen before. And it's going to be amazing. I completely agree. Will, thank you so much for coming on the show, brother. Oh, thank you for having me, Jeff. This was great. And thank you so much for everything you shared and for everything you're doing. Um, I'm dropping it right here on the screen, but for those that are only going to be listening to the audio version, tell people where they can find you and your work. I want to make sure that as many people as possible uh, find out about the Renaissance of men and get involved in doing what they can in their own ways to continue going out beyond the border fires into that darkness and spreading those ideas and spreading those values and spreading those messages to those that need to hear it. Excellent. Well, thanks for, thanks for saying all that. And, uh, you know, I'm most active on Instagram. Uh, which is at Ren of Men. That's uh, on the screen, R-E-N-O-F-M-E-N, -E -E like Renaissance of Men, but shorter. Uh, I'm becoming increasingly active on Twitter, and that's at Will underscore Ren of Men. You can visit my website, renofmen.com, and I also have a podcast that I'm very proud of called The Renaissance of Men, and that's available on Apple and Spotify and Google and all your favorite podcast platforms. On that podcast, I have two different kinds of shows. I have interview shows where I go long-form conversations, you know, two to three hours sometimes. And I also do a series called Poetry for Men, where I read and interpret a poem 
through the lens of masculine values. And I recently did Hamlet's soliloquy to be or not to be. And I'm very proud of that. So if you go to my podcast and you listen to the Hamlet soliloquy, I think you'll get a lot out of it. That's awesome. Uh, for those of you watching, for those of you listening, if you check out the show notes, uh, for those of you watching, the show notes will be there as soon as the video is done processing and I can get them added. Um, but for those of you listening, they're already there. You can go down there. You can click on the links to everything that Will just mentioned and start checking out a lot of his work. Uh, you, if you want to connect with him, like he said, Instagram, Twitter. Instagram is at Run of Men. Twitter is at Will underscore Run of Men. Will, thank you very much for coming on the show. Once again, it was great talking to you. Great to see you again. We haven't seen each other's face and actually heard each other's voice since we were hanging out in Florida, man. And so it's great to finally see you again. That's great to see you again. Congratulations on all the crazy growth going on and on this new development. And I hope this went well for your first time streaming live. Oh, yeah. Uh, we'll see how it goes on the other end. I, I'm, not, I'm not even sure how the video <laughs> turned out. But uh, if it came out well, I'm going to keep doing these. I really like the idea of being able to see uh, a lot of involvement from the audience, yeah, even though it's on its first run here. So not a lot of people have actually done it. I uh, have seen that it's live. That's cool. I like it. A lot of the videos are still coming out as a re relatively new channel, yeah. but uh, we'll do, we'll keep spreading those ideas and get more and more people involved and more people to see it. Amen. Amen. Right there with you. All right. Thanks for coming on the show, brother. Thanks brother. Thanks a lot. All right, and for the rest of you, thank you all so much for tuning in to the first ever live episode of The Perimeter. I uh, have, a, have a request. This video, if you enjoyed it, please share it on your social media page. Please include the link on the website. Or if you have a list and subscribers, these are things that your audience would appreciate. Things you audience hear, things you talk about. Share those things. Answer at Redman on Instagram at Will underscore Redman on Twitter. Also, if you could do me one small favor, go back down here to the corner and smash the outline daylights out of that like button and subscribe to the channel because I'm going to be doing more of these. This is going to be an ongoing show for as long as I can possibly do it until they ban me from YouTube. This is going to be it for me, and this has been episode three.